First off, Jim, I want to say thank you very much for the willingness to sit down and talk with me about your life. I just kind of read over this uh, two-page um, synopsis. synopsis that you got that you're uh, currently creating. And for all the listeners out there, will you tell me what year were you born? 1932. So 1932, that makes you... 90 years old. 90 years old. You have reached... You are by far like beyond that median age for an American. (laughs) I mean, most American men die at the age of 78. I lost my grandfather at the age of 83 and my grandmother at the age of 86. And here you are at 92 years old... And your mind is still sharp and witty, and you're still chucking around, and you're you're getting at it. And um, my, I worked with you for quite a while at the school district. You were driving bus, right. and then you had retired. And something that you didn't do when people retire is, you didn't kind of check out of everything. You do these things um, on Facebook that I greatly enjoy, and I know a lot of other people do. You call them like your morning coffee. Right. So you share you share your thoughts on the world and you do this through social media. And it's awesome because some of your opinions, they're never filtered and they're always straight to the point. And they make me chuckle a lot of them because I don't imagine this stuff coming out of a 92 year old guy. (laughs) Um, But growing up in 1932 versus now. How was that? I mean, way back then, and you, you were born in Salt Lake County, correct? Correct. Um, and I read that you had mom and dad, and you're the oldest of... Six. Six. Are all of your siblings still alive? No. No, we... Uh, I'm the oldest. Carol, a sister, passed away. Gail, a sister, passed away. Then we had twins, Norman and Norma. And Norman passed away some years back. And then Lynette, which is our oops. <laughs> <laughs> so being the oldest, how, how have you made it this far? Do you have a, is there a secret to making it to 90? One word, curiosity. Curiosity. It might kill a cat, but it's keeping this dude alive. <laughs> I've often said that I need, I, I have this passion to learn something new every day. And when I finally know everything, then I'll be ready to leave. <laughs> That's awesome. Where did you go to school? Like, when when did you notice this huge curiosity start to peak? Well, it was, it was basically established uh, prior to World War II, and we were moving constantly. So I was... In school, out of school, another school, different school, you know, and uh, so I was seemingly always playing catch up. Um, born and raised in Salt Lake, but grew up in California in the sense that for World War II, my dad went to work for Greyhound bus and moved us to California. And uh, so I grew up in Sacramento and went through South Sacramento and then to Vallejo to, for middle school. And by then, we moved back to Salt Lake City. 
And so I had my three years at West High. And, uh, and at the end of that, I asked if I could come back for one more year. And they told me no. But, <laughs> but it was an awkward time in that during the war, they abandoned seventh grade as such to give the boys an extra year to get into the war or get out of it or whatever. And uh, from that, I finally got my three years in, but it meant I graduated from uh, high school at 17. And along the way, I had met the girl I married at 14, and by 18, we were married and had 53 years, three months, 10 days, 11 and a half hour marriage when she died. But who's counting? <laughs> <laughs> you are, obviously. This, uh, this sounds like a, a very interesting love story. You guys met at 14? At 14. And uh, at 18, we were going to get married on my birthday, but uh, we just couldn't last that long. So instead of the 24th of August, it was the 26th of July. Wow. And uh, she was from Nebraska originally. And come to find out, one of my police buddies, uh, Bob Brayman, was raised in her hometown in Nebraska and had gone to school with a couple of her aunts. And he was the one who had to come and tell me that my dad had been killed in a car accident. Oh, really? So it's a small world. Yeah, for sure. And so you guys get married right out of high school, and do you start having children, or did you wait a while? We we had three daughters, and they've been spaced out. And uh, the oldest died at 32 years old. Um, the other two, Tammy and Lori, are 60 and 55, and they check on Daddy every day. <laughs> Because you live here with on your property with them. Right. right. And uh, uh, we've had this property since 1975. So I throw these numbers around like they're everyday things. And then I stop and realize that 1975 was almost 50 years ago. <laughs> yes. I mean, for put it into perspective, I was born in 1990, so I can't even <laughs> fathom what 1975 was like, let alone uh, the year you were born of 1932. So you get married um, with the love of your life, and you go into the, what I was reading, like neon signs? Is that what you started doing? Right. We, uh, it was around about, problem finding where I was really comfortable. And I wanted a scholarship for art design, but I never was able to avail it because it was out of Denver. But uh, I have done design and artwork, and the shoulder pads that Salt Lake Police Department wears to this day, I designed when I was 25 years old. So when you had joined the police right. force is when you designed that patch that it's like a black star and an orange. Yellow, dark yellow. Dark yellow. And uh, Cleon Skousen, there's a name out of the past, wanted the city at the time had a little four inch round shoulder patch. And he wanted something that 
you could see two blocks away and know it was Salt Lake Police. And so I gave him that design, drew it up with blue lettering, dark blue like the shirt, and yellow, dark yellow, and uh, submitted it to him, and they adopted it, and they've used it for 65 years now. That's crazy. What made you go from, like, neon, designing some of these neon signs, and some of them you said are still in use down in Vegas, to wanting to become a police officer? What sprung that? Well, six of us went up to sign up for the Air Force for Korea, and I was 4F. They wouldn't take me. So uh, a couple others and I decided, well, let's go do police work. So I got into that and uh, worked narcotics and got quite an education in the drug industry and uh, the protectionism that they use to protect their drugs that you can't buy at a fair price. (laughs) (laughs) Notice the emphasis, and uh, uh, worked that. And then one night on duty up in the avenues, we got a call of teens prowling cars. And so I went one block up above where they were reported to be and come down 3rd Avenue, and there they were. And I went to pull in front of them to cut them off. They hit my car and took off. And we chased down through the avenues to 3rd Avenue and G Street. And uh, I hit a curb and rolled my patrol car up onto its side. And with the high bank, it came back down. We didn't have seat belts at the time. I went across, holding onto the steering wheel to the other door, came back and got the armrest in the small of my back and broke it. And was unable to get out of the car. They had to take me to the hospital. And I spent six months with fusions in my spine so I can walk today. And so they retired me on a medical. So you did six years as a law enforcement officer then? Six years and then it was ended because of this accident. Um, Do you think you would have stayed in law enforcement for the, the long run? Yeah, it was something I found interesting because... There's such a variety of what you can do in it. Yeah. Uh, Not only radio patrol checking doors, and there's traffic, there's narcotics, there's uh, auto theft. What years were you a police officer? What years were— I went on in 1952 and retired in 58. In 58? It's it's amazing just listening to you even talk about that accident because one thing that— you just said that struck me was we didn't even have seat belts back then. <laughs> no, the, no, the, we were using the city bought a fleet of, Poli- of Plymouth cars, patrol cars, and uh, no seat belts in them at all. And yet we were doing these chases and smashes. And <laughs> one night I had two kids had stolen a car in Midvale and uh, spotted them coming up Third East uh, being chased by other patrol cars. And I sat at South Temple and 3rd East with my lights off. And when they pulled close, I took them head on. <laughs> wow. That's that's crazy. So after this medical retirement, what what did you decide to do? I mean, because you're, you're Mr. Curious. Where did you go from this? <laughs> well, I, I actually 
got into a couple other things along the way and then got elected into the State House of Representatives. And I did one term there in 1969. And uh, So the, the states, is that Congress or Senate? It's Utah State U- government. Oh, okay. And uh, uh, I did my two years there and wanted somebody else to take a chance at it. It was quite a quite a thing for me. And uh, uh, I learned that a secretary in state government has more effectiveness than an elected representative. Oh, really? Because if I needed something really done, I'd not send a secretary to get it done. Wow. <laughs> and uh, and out of that, with all my sign painting coming out of the legislature, I spent the next three or four years uh, doing all the lettering and all the Capitol doors. Really? <laughs> the Capitol building doors. Up there on Capitol, right. Capitol Hill up there with— And eventually they came out with a computerized final cutter and started cutting them out of gold uh, and then just sticking them on the door. But uh, it was quite quite an experience. Got to know everybody very well. Got to be great friends with Cal Rampton. And uh, uh, Jim, what's the name that followed it? Uh, but the best 20 years in Utah government was Rampton, and uh, uh, they named the courthouse after him. What years did you go into Utah government then? I, uh, I got elected in 1969, and... Uh, Left the office in 71. In 71? Yeah, I, I chose not to run for re-election. So were you around—that would have put you in your 40s? Were you in your 40s when you did that? Or? You know, 69, yeah, close to 40. Got you. So um, doing—man, you have this wide range of start out as a sign maker to a police <laughs> officer, then you then you go into government office— and then you're doing designs for the government. And then something that I've also noticed through your social media is you were an actor as well? I've been in about 40 movies. Yeah, so I would say pretty <laughs> safe that you're an actor. Because you got pictures I've seen with, like, Kathy Bates and mm-hmm. all sorts you know, of celebrities. A home of our own. When, when did you start acting? In the third grade. In the third grade? I played King Mac of Macaronia. <laughs> And this was just one of your other interests that you pursued? Well, yes and no. It, uh, I served six years on the national board of the Screen Actors Guild, going to Hollywood or one of the branch cities around the country every month for board meetings and uh, hung out with everybody. It... Uh, it, it was a fun time. It was the six middle years of the 1990s. Wow. And so 40 movies. So you did you travel all over America making these movies, or were they primarily no, made here in Utah? Right here. Right here? No, actually, Salt Lake City is known as Hollywood East. Is it? They film a lot of movies here. And uh, Ronald Reagan did his Death Valley days at Kanab. Oh, wow. And they used to do a lot of Westerners down there. 
Yeah, I, I knew that they did quite a few movies here. I didn't know the extent of it. Um, I've worked on a few movie sets, not as an actor or a uh, any like production or anything. I um, When I was in my early 20s, I got my emergency medical technician. Mm. Um, so I worked one of my uh, classmates that was there. Her father was a producer here in Utah. And he needed, I guess, like the union requires an EMT on set yeah, of all yeah, these uh, movies. And she's like, come be an EMT movie medic. And I was like, why would I do that? And she's like, well, $35 an hour and free food all day. I was like, sign me up. <laughs> so I watched a bunch of movies get made and just kind of help people when they got hurt, but which wasn't often. But it was cool to see movies be made. Um, but I'm kind of jealous of you. You get into act in all these films and meet all these stars and everything is it is there one star in particular that stands out as your favorite to work with or kathy bates was it she was well she is an absolute jewel i uh, i was asked to describe her by somebody i don't even remember when it was a long time ago but i said she uh, she was not a star she was the whole galaxy Oh really? She she came on set one day. The storyline was supposedly she had been out with a, her boss the night before for a date, and he didn't get what he wanted, so he beat her up. So when we did the scene, she came on set all made up, bloody and <laughs> bruised, and and I said, "Oh, I gotta get a picture of this," and she says, "No, no, no," and I said, "Yes, yes, yes," and we did. And sadly, the flash wiped out all of the makeup. <laughs> but she was one of the absolute most fantastic. I mean, when I see her in misery and also see her in a home of our own, diametrically opposed, two different people, two different attitudes. And uh, it just filled me with pride and and. and appreciation for having worked with her and uh, Ernest Borgnine I did with Touched by an Angel Okay. and uh, Tom Bosley who was Happy Day's dad and uh, a few other like that Della Reese, Roma Downey got to work with all of these and these, so are you doing this acting as like a side gig to kind of your other careers that you're pursuing? Well, or... I've I've done it when it's it's not something I have actually you know set up as a goal. Gotcha. Uh, I have an agent who will send me. We have an audition for you for this, and here's the sides. Here's here's the lines, mm -hmm. and they want you to be able to to do them. And with the pandemic, we've had to do them by recording them. Oh, really? And then they take the the tape. But so uh, you're you're still kind of doing roles to this day a little bit here and oh, there. Oh yeah. Or, oh wow. Yeah, That's... I uh, uh, a while back I did a radio commercial for Bear River Insurance. Really? And uh, they were looking for somebody with a a different voice that would be recognized, and I guess they found somebody better. But mine is recognizable for darn sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. Um, I want to kind of ask you, I want to go back to um, your relationship with your wife. What age did your wife pass away at? 72. 72. So you've been living 
82, 90, 20 years without her. Yeah. How has that been? Is that just horrible? Devastating, I would imagine. Horrible. Especially starting as like basically high school sweethearts and living all the way up to then. And because I always tell my significant other that I want to be the first to go. I don't want to be the one that lingers on. So it's it's been rough for you. It has. uh, And I. I classify her death as death by cigarette. Suicide by cigarette. Uh, they say it's harder for, for for a woman to quit smoking. And uh, she smoked all of those years. Started at 13 by her own admission. And uh, I would caution as a side note, don't smoke cigarettes. I beg of you. And I am so pleased that fewer and fewer people are smoking. Yeah, it seems like the... The level of people smoking actual cigarettes is going down, but now a lot of people are doing those vapes and things of those natures. Well, is... it's uh, my 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 get get to for years was biting my nails till they bled, and finally I had to just break myself of that. Yeah, uh, I did smoke for uh, a few years back when I was young and dumb, and. Uh, I got up one morning and said, oh, I can quit. This is easy. I'll go five minutes without a cigarette. And I went to five minutes. and I can go five again. And by then I'm chewing in a bag of Doritos and five minutes more. And now I literally have been quit for 60 years. This is how you quit cigarettes. It's just by saying five more minutes, five more minutes. Wow. That's... That's a good way of looking at it. Um, I recently, it's I've been about uh, about a year and a half sober of alcohol, and I, I had to make that conscious decision of this is going to put me in an early grave, so I need to stop drinking. And I'll tell you what, it sometimes it's kind of like that. It's a minute-by-minute minute succession to yes. just keep it going. So that's amazing that you were able to do that. Um, what was... or what is the biggest thing that stands out to you that's kept you so witty and so engaging? Because talking to you right now, so for instance, my dad, he is 66 years old. He doesn't have the sharpness that you do. He's like almost showing like early signs of dementia Mm, and stuff. I'm sorry. But you being 92, you're sharp and witty and you're right on it. And you say it's curiosity, but are there other things that have helped keep you going to where? Because I work with people that are in that the aging workforce and stuff of that. And they're not as sharp as you and can remember all these dates and all this (laughs) stuff that's coming out of you. Well, I do a lot of crossword puzzles. That seems to be the key to it. I do a lot of reading, a variety. I have no particular genre uh, for reading. I've just finished a book by a fellow. (laughs) To show you how sharp I am, I can't think of his (laughs) name. uh, Who was chief security chief in New York after the Twin Towers. And... uh, of what they went through and the panic and the preparations that they had already started working on. However, they were uh, eventually, you know, something might happen, you know, 
and all of a sudden, and that flashed back to during the World War II when a B-25 bomber crashed into the Empire State Building. Yeah. So and, that that's, a, that's kind of, that makes me curious to ask you this question because you've been around for so long. You've seen all these devastating times in America from September 11th, and then you bring up all the way back then with that B-52 crashing into the Empire State Building. Is there a time in America's history that stands out the most for you as being like just a devastating time where you were like, wow, this was really tough on the country or really tough on you? Yeah, one word. Trump. <laughs> I, had, I had a feeling you were going to go there. He He is sort of like... My description of him, how he affects my life, would be the same as if somebody told me I had colon cancer. <laughs> he is he is the most disgusting example of what a president of this country should be. Uh, after you after you get through me, me, me. He doesn't have any more world. Well, and that that's interesting that you have this this take on Trump that you were able to see his presidency because you've lived through plenty of presidents, both Republican and Democrat. Right. And you would say, as far as Trump goes, not worthy of the office and a despicable person over the people you've seen hold that office over the years. Well, he's like the bottom of a garbage can, really. I... Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was president when I was growing up. He served four terms during World War II. And the Republicans panicked. They got a constitutional amendment that the president can only serve two terms. And uh, <laughs> and to show you their, their ignorance... When Ronald Reagan served his second term, they were trying to amend the Constitution again so he could serve a third term. I mean, this is this is the integrity of today's Republican Party. Mm -hmm. They have none. Now, have you always found yourself to be a Democrat? Have you always grown up that way, or were you... Pretty much independent. I've leaned Democrat, but I can honestly say I have never voted a straight party ticket. That's good. I like. I love to hear people that don't do that. I hate to hear two things. The one thing I hate is people who don't vote. I get it's their choice to not vote, but it, it's just like, you know, it's you have that power. The people have that power. Get out and vote. And then I hate when I see people vote just straight down the party lines. It's like, no, you need to do your research on all of the people you're voting for. Well, I have a present day example as to why straight party ticket doesn't work. George Soros. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be a perfect example. I mean, the man is a... I, I'm not sure that he's even mentally well. Um, we know that Trump is a chronic liar. He doesn't know when he says it. He, he doesn't know if he's telling the truth or lying. And uh, uh, the most heartbreaking days that I have lived through in this country, even through the assassination of John Kennedy. Um, 
the man is, is like a rudderless ship in a windstorm. He doesn't know from minute to minute what he's going to think or say, and the irresponsibility of him holding the office of president. I would pray, and I'm an atheist, I would pray that America never puts this man back in public office. So um, is that kind of one of your fears? Um, because you've obviously stated that Trump being president was almost the worst thing you've seen America go through, the worst time that you've been through with this country. Are you uh, fearful that Trump's going to hold the presidency again in another two years? Does that bother you? I'm concerned. Uh, I, I have two years to advocate and uh, I'm not sure that, <clears throat> and I dislike saying this, but I'm not sure that Biden could do another term. Uh, he's having problems. I think he's in early stages of dementia. Uh, I'm, I would be hard-pressed to find anybody with the veracity and the one-upsmanship of McCarthy to just pull off the speaker thing, uh, somebody of that blindness uh, in the Democratic Party. We are missing a lot of great, great people. And uh, uh, it just seems that we are getting weaker and weaker all the time. And the Republicans are gaining and gaining, but it's all through lying and cheating. And, uh, I mean, if a Republican told me, I'm, I'm telling him a lie, I wouldn't believe him. <laughs> <laughs> See, and that's the problem I have with where I sit in the political spectrum of things and view things. Because when I was, I grew up in a uh, family of, uh, they weren't staunch Republicans, but they were Republicans. Um, and my grandparents were definitely Republicans. And so you know how that goes. You kind of just get indoctrinated into the, the right wing uh, thinking. And then when I turned 1920, I went total opposite. I was liberal all the way. And but as of recently, I tell everyone I'm politically homeless because I can't trust <laughs> either party. I like that. Because <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know anymore any of these people that are holding office or doing doing the things that this nation's going through. And it just, I, I find a hard, I'm in a, in a hard spot, I guess is what I would say, because I can't see voting for Biden again, because I definitely don't think I'm kind of on board with you that he doesn't have it in him to serve another term. I don't want Trump in office, but I don't know. I really got dismayed with the Democratic Party with what they did to Bernie Sanders when he was running against Hillary Clinton. Yes. That's what really lost me with it. And then I got behind a candidate, um, uh, now I've lost his name. Um, he was the math guy, the Asian math guy. He was all for um, eh, his name's lost me, but um, he obviously they all got beat in the primary by Biden again, and 
the Biden Kamala Harris thing, I just don't think it's going to win. And I don't think it's a good thing going well, forward. But I'm also with you. I don't think Trump's a good thing going forward either. I, I will say this. We have a perfect setup going to have the first female president in history. And I would not be offended by that idea at all. For 20-some years, 30 years maybe, I've been saying I want to live long enough to see the first female president. Uh, we've seen Una Merkel run Germany. We've seen uh, uh, other women run other countries. Uh, Una is the one that comes to mind right off the top. And uh, she did an excellent job. Uh, I, I have not been able to find any reason that uh, Kamala couldn't be president with my support. Uh, I even, I won't name them, but there's even a couple Republican women that I would look at very hard to vote for for president. But I, uh, I would love to see a female president. See, if... If there was a female out there that could run for the presidency that I would be 100% behind, it would be uh, Tulsi Gabber. Are you familiar with her? Yes. I think she's a down-to-earth individual that could do a great job in the White House. She's amazing. Yes. She's, She's a free thinker, which means like too many people in the political spectrum are set in concrete. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a Democrat, do or die. I'm a re- I'm a Republican, and I refuse to die. <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's it, great. It. Uh, no, I I have voted for Republicans over the years, and uh, but it's been for the person, not the party. Yeah. No, I I totally understand that. How has been growing up? with the innovation of technology because you come from a time where telephones and everything like that went through a switchboard. Yes. And now you're in a world where the whole internet is sitting in our pocket. Like we have the world (laughs) in our pocket. I was amazed. I take some electronic paper magazines and I remember reading an article one day saying, It's not too far in the future that you'll be carrying your telephone in your pocket. And my first thought was, my God, can you imagine the tangling of wires all over the streets? (laughs) And uh, the first they came out with, I had to get one, and it was the old Motorola brick. And it's literally a brick, right? Like huge, massive thing. Yeah, it was. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, uh, the thing I will give credit for, I was working on a rooftop on a sign and dropped it, and it slid off the roof, clear to the ground, cracked the case, but the phone still worked. <laughs> and, uh, but I've, I've always, always had a, a, a soft spot for Motorola. I, I have a sister and brother-in-law who lived in Scottsdale. And they both worked for Motorola. So it was just a, an appreciation. Gotcha. But uh, Motorola has done some amazing things. 
and uh, and I think it's because they have taken time to formulate some financial planning to where they can take a good constructive step forward uh, and have pretty well proven it on paper before they spend the dollars. And Motorola now is everywhere. Motorola is in space. Motorola is in our TVs. Motorola is in two-way radios, telephones. And, uh, and I'm very grateful to them for giving my sister and her husband jobs. He worked on the uh, moon rover for them. Oh, really? On the communications part. And uh, uh, it's just, I'm always amazed at the six degrees of separation, which have been proven to me over and over and over. I was one step away from President Clinton through Jake Garn, who was a friend who was a senator. And I understand now he's lost in dementia. Uh, I've been one step away from so many people I can't even remember them all. But from that uh, King Mac of Macaronia, uh, like I say, I've done 40 movies. Um, I've worked with so many people I don't even remember. But... Uh, one of the absolute sweetest was Della Reese with Touched by an Angel. I did three episodes, which was all the producers would allow of local talent. And uh, every day when she'd come on set, she'd come around and give everybody a hug, nuzzle with her head, and uh, she was all heart. We had it all planned out. She... You know, she was a reverend. She had it all, we had it all planned out for her to perform my wife and I's 50th anniversary. Oh, really? And she came down ill and went home and died. And this, uh, your wife or? Della. Oh, okay. Because I was like, I thought your wife made it to. Uh, and, uh, and it, uh, so many things like that have run into a brick wall. So I appreciate those in the sense that they have made, as my grandma Platt used to say, she had five sons and a daughter. And her dad and three sons and the daughter died, all of them. And somebody said, well, how do you handle it, May? You know, with all of them, dying off and all that. She's, well, the way I think about it, the good has made the bad times bearable. And the bad times have made the good bitter. And I've always kept that tucked away in the back of my mind that no matter how bad something gets, you can find something to hold on to. And that pretty well has been my my situation since my wife passed, uh, 18 years. Uh, I've got a lady friend. I haven't had a lover uh, because my heart still belongs to mama. <laughs> yeah. So you and your lady friend, you guys go out and just enjoy each other's company? Yeah. we uh, Mostly we get together and go to lunch 
she comes every day here to check on me that I'm okay. And if I need to go to the store, she takes me to the store. Because I'm hung up in this thing now of emissions, my car won't pass emissions. So I can't get my car licensed. <laughs> so now I got webuyanycar.com. And uh, I'm trying to sell my car to them. Gotcha. <laughs> but uh, I'm just, I'm living every day, every minute, and whatever comes down the pike, I just make the best of it. So on a positive note, because I asked you, what was one of the things in America's history that you remembered as being the most negative and the worst thing that you've seen? And you said Trump. Let's flip that around. What was the most positive time in America's history while you've been alive that you remember? What was one of those just sweet moments where you're like, yes, this is this is going right? Boy, that would be hard because there's so many. Uh, I can come up with negatives easier. <laughs> <laughs> one of the one. Well, this this I can put in the positive column. My wife and I. Uh, years ago, I did a a four by six four four by six little billboard sign for Morris Travel. They were giving away a uh, two tickets to Hawaii uh, as the door prize to a celebrity golf tournament here that was used to raise money for the newborn infants up at the, in, infants up at the University of Utah Hospital. And uh, so I did the sign, and uh, Morris Travel asked, "What would they? What would I charge to make them a permanent plastic sign that matched it?" And I says, "I will make you a permanent plastic sign in a plywood case lined with foam for two tickets to Hawaii." And he says, "You got them." Wow. So we had a former neighbor when we lived in California who had a condo on Kauai. So I contacted her. Do you have, uh, is your condo available the first week of December? And this is 1981. And she says, let me check. She called back. Yeah, it's available. And I says, can I reserve it? And she says, yeah. She says, you'll have to pay the maintenance fee. And I says, no problem, what's that? And she's $15 a day. <laughs> so we had this two-bedroom condo on Kauai for seven days. Well, five days, and five more days on Oahu <clears throat> through a friend who represents Comfort Quality Inn. Mm -hmm. So we had five days on Kauai, five days on Oahu. And... Uh, we got, we did our five on Kauai and just fell in love with the island and uh, flew over to, back over to Oahu and uh, checked into the hotel there and they took the information <laughs> and he went around the wall and came back with the manager who introduced himself and he says, Mr. Platt, I am so sorry. Now, this involves the 5th to the 10th of December, 1981, 40th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And uh, 
So he says, I, I really, really feel bad, but could I ask a favor of you? Would you accept the penthouse for your five days and no extra charge? <laughs> oh, yeah, twist my arm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we had five days in the penthouse, and uh, we went out on Pearl Harbor on December 7th. And it was very eerie in that across the harbor, they were burning off cane fields. So here's Pearl Harbor and all these smoke rising up. And it really graphically gave you 1941 all over. I can only imagine. And... Uh, my wife mentioned something to one of the people about me being a state legislature from state legislator from Utah. They took us up on the bandstand, sat us there as VIPs, and asked me to say a few words, and I did. And um, I thanked for the unknowing sacrifice that Pearl Harbor made, all those people who died to protect the mainland because that carrier could have come and attacked California as easy as not. But mm -hmm. I remember growing up during the war in Sacramento with the dirigibles up about 200 feet on chains with chains hanging down to about 12 feet from the ground to catch low-flying airplanes. Really? If they launched and came flying inland. And they would encounter these dangling chains, which would take them down. But they did capture a little two-man sub that made it into San Francisco Bay. Oh, wow. And uh, captured them. But the thing that dawned on me years later was the United States with England and uh, Australia and other allies, France, even though Germany ended up occupying France, that we actually were involved in two separate World War Twos, the European theater and the, and the Pacific. Yeah. We fought two separate wars, manned them, funded them, and whipped them both, and to this day still occupy both countries. And that people don't realize. Germany and Japan will never be allowed to create armies large enough for anything but self-defense. And American troops are assigned to two-year assignments in both countries because we still are the boss. <laughs> wow. I didn't realize that either. And uh, But we fought both wars simultaneously and won them. But... Uh, there's just been a lot. I mean, in my lifetime, Hitler beat everybody with Werner Bruin with coming up with jet planes. And uh, they actually built some fighters. And uh, I was young, and that came out, and I'm wondering, how in the hell do, do they work by pushing or sucking in air? And finally I figured out well, hell, if a tornado can tear down a building, then it can be pushing against the air. 
So that's <laughs> how I figured out how jet planes fly. Yeah. And uh, uh, I'm right on the flight path for the airport. And they have a flight that leaves here at 3-something in the morning. And every morning it comes right over the top. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever thought about um, or had that moment in your mind over your 92 years of life of this is it for planet Earth? Like, for instance, the Cuba Missile Crisis, what's going on now in Russia and Ukraine, like an apocalyptic scenario. Was there any thought of that? Uh, well, I I realized it could happen. And I realized <clears throat> when people say, well, no, we, we would never drop the atomic bomb. God, people, we are the only country who's ever dropped one. <laughs> and we did it twice. How yeah. short your memories and Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the second one was dropped through the underground. We learned these things. The second one was dropped by President Truman to tell Russia, this is our war. You keep out of it. So do you, do you ever have a fear of uh, another atomic bomb going going off or do you have you just come to the realization that hey it could happen i'm 92 i've lived a good damn life whatever if it happens well the only thing i ask is when i go don't hurt <laughs> you know make it quick uh i've had cancer and they say if you've had it once you're going to get it again well i had it we caught it early Surgically got rid of it. What kind of cancer was it? Colon. Colon cancer? Well, prostate, actually. And uh, it uh, came out clean. I get checked every so often, and uh, I go into the doctor's office again, matter of fact, on the 16th of this month. And uh, we keep track of it. But my body is beginning to load up with arthritis. So, and there's nothing they can do with that except pain pills. Yeah. And so far, my right ankle is full of it. So at 92, you also made a, you also made a statement earlier that you're an atheist. Yes. Um, does death scare you? No. Not at all? No. It's just part of the organic existence. Do you have any, uh, any belief? Or do you think we just go in a hole in the ground? Just go in a hole. I mean, God exists in my thoughts in all of us, in our good works. Uh, a separate entity somewhere off in the heavens sitting alongside a highway paved of gold? No, I, I do not, never have bought into that as a God. Uh, I even question whether Jesus ever existed, really. I think the crucifix is a good pawn shop gift to sell. <laughs> That's, I mean, because I myself, I, I grew up with non-religious parents. And then I was um, 
in Utah, everyone gets that knock on the door, which I got, and I was baptized LDS, but I quickly fell away from that faith when I was, um, God, I like eight years old. I was like, this ain't for me. Um, and then growing up, I also uh, really kind of adapted to the fact that I don't think there's anything out there, a great God or anything of that nature. And then I worked for a cemetery for a while. And the thing that crossed my mind while working at a cemetery is I got to perform a lot of different funerals. Like I didn't perform them, but I observed them. And right. we put a lot of different people into the ground. And I can tell you that everyone has their faith and everyone thinks their faith is right. Like to the T. They're like, nope, this is me. And so when I talk to people, I'm like, how do you know your faith is so right when that person over there thinks their faith is so right? Like, how do you know you pick the right one? And it's always, well, we just do. And so that's kind of what's always turned me off about religion to where I'm like, nah, I don't, I'm, I'm not on board with that. I, I have come to this idea of maybe like energy or something out there, like energy transfer. But as far as a, uh, a guy up in the clouds that, judges us on what we do uh right or wrong i am i'm fully on board with you and it's interesting that you say that you find god in just people within the good that people do um because i think a lot of people nowadays with the advent of uh social media and all these other avenues of communication rather than face-to-face communication like we're doing now People have got a lot more rude <laughs> and a lot less uh, respectful of individuals, I think, and a lot less understanding. Would you say you agree with that? I do. I do. It's uh, because the personal interchange is not there like here. <clears throat> words by themselves without the emotion are just words. You've got to have the meaning behind them because you can say, so many different words, different ways that mean different things, uh, like rough and bow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, it, it just, and cough and tough, rough. It, it, you have to have that little extra thing to, to validate it. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is why... I think so many people get lost and aggravated because they're not being understood by somebody reading a typed word. And uh, I see some exchanges that get going, and literally, I just shut the whole thing off and leave. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's irritating, it's aggravating. The, the problem, one problem that I see is so many people are not listening to what you're saying, but they're thinking up their answer. And so many cases, it's thought up with one-upsmanship. You know, if you think you're clever, listen to this. I find that a lot nowadays. Everyone's got a story better than yours, and they right. want to let you know that your story's okay, but mine's better. <laughs> Well, the answer to that I learned years ago. No, I'm not going to argue with you. You continue being wrong as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> and 
<laughs> there you go. Do you have any uh, ultimate goals with this later part of your life? Because you're in like the fourth chapter. You're in the final chapter of your life. Oh, I'm clear to the appendix. <laughs> Oh, I didn't want to say it. <laughs> no, I... But I, I don't think you are because, like I said, coming in here, I expected to see you a lot more frail and fragile than you actually are, and you still are sharp and witty. I mean, is like that uh, age of 100, do you think that's obtainable for you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Unless I got shot by a jealous husband. <laughs> <laughs> Well, stay away from married women. <laughs> well, in this town, there are so many married women that are ignored. <laughs> that that is true. There's I, I have <clears throat> any number of friends. Uh, not not many who are single, but uh, I have married friends that. Some parts of the day, I got in the habit of listening to, of sharing, communicating with one lady who uh, whose husband has Alzheimer's. So I started playing card games with her online and that to fill her day. Mm -hmm. And uh, we get into some very, very deep discussions and... Uh, We've gone to lunch a couple times, and uh, I would never approach her for anything because she's the kind you know is so protective of her husband. Yeah. You can take her to lunch, but not a date. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, uh, and, and that's fair because I'm not looking for dating anymore because uh, I don't know if tomorrow I'd be available, <laughs> you know. And and yet I have one lifelong lady friend that uh, uh, her husband died uh, two months after my wife died. And we dated for a while, and then it just kind of eased off, and both of us getting older and slower. And, and so now we've narrowed it down to one Sunday a month. And... Uh, we go up and have have brunch and uh, a kiss on the cheek and then go home. <laughs> and uh, I'm not, on one hand, I'm, I'm still a, a big romantic. Mm -hmm. I really am. I love hugging a woman. I love kissing. I love touching a woman. Uh, but with respect and consent, um, I, on the police department, got involved in a case that uh, was supposedly, was thought to be consensual, but ended up rape. And uh, it just totally tore my heart apart. And... Uh, to me, rape is one of the most bastardly deeds on the face of the earth. Yeah. It's totally unforgivable uh, because that's a woman's pride, her possession. That 
a woman is her whole reproduction purpose in life. Mm -hmm. And uh, to prostitute it, uh, I mean, even that I can't stand. And yet I sponsored a bill to legalize prostitution in Utah, and I would do it again. It's being done every day on street corners, and I can tell you where. Yeah, that's oh, that's very true. And uh, because there are some women who that's the only means of making a living, and uh, and I think prostitution with medical every couple of days is fine, totally fine. Well, you would be in the vast minority here in Utah with that. <laughs> Not among men. <laughs> Well, they, they wouldn't come out and say that. <laughs> no, but but see, the, the admission is with being a Mormon state, it is a patriarchal state. The men are in charge. The men make the rules. The men abuse the women. The men use the women. The men marry them and divorce them when they get tired. It's, it's a male culture, and I am not very proud or happy of that. Yeah, I, I, I remember... Um, pretty vividly once uh this was when you were still working with me and we worked uh worked with a lot of very very right wing very very lds people and in in the culture you have a lot of them around you so some people feel very uncomfortable about stepping up and voicing an opposition to anything that they have you weren't that and I remember you called one of these gentlemen on his his opinions with your own and very front frontly and forward told him basically he was full of shit. <laughs> and yeah. I gained a lot of respect for you that day because I was like, I was younger, I was in my early 20s. I was like, I would have never said that to this man. But you just, you stepped up and said, hey, no, I don't, I don't agree with the way you're presenting this i can't even remember what we were talking about it was something with government i remember that and you just but i i remember his reaction was pure shock like someone just told me to basically shove it <laughs> i'm the one that does that to everyone every day and gets away with it well i do it i i i like to think i am reasonable in my thinking uh, I, I believe I'm honest and fair and open-minded, <clears throat> and uh, but I also will call shit shit. <laughs> it's uh, and I I used to get I listen to some of these people talking, and I you know you must have a window in your belly button. Because your head's so far up in the ass, that's the only way you can look forward. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. You know, yeah. it's um, fanaticism. Barry Goldwater said years ago that radicalism in the pursuit of liberty was justified or something extremely close to that. And I, radicalism is never justified radicalism can be the seed to negotiation but radical taking a hard right or a hard left turn one is equally as bad as the other uh, you must always leave 
an escape route where you can, well, tell me what you think then. You know, uh, I don't want to reject it just because you're stupid. Tell me what you think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, and arbitration has always been a beautiful tool for me. Uh, if we disagree, fine, we can disagree. But let's figure out why. And let's see how badly we disagree. Do you think that's a huge problem in today's society and today's uh, culture is instead of seeing where we disagree and trying to come to terms on that, everyone just plays on a team like left or right and will not compromise at all? Well, there are a lot who won't. Uh, I'm willing to always ask, why do you think... You know, and if, if it's really irritating, why in the hell do you think that? <laughs> you know, explain to me. But you're willing to listen when people... Yeah. Like, I think that's a huge thing that we've lost in these, especially since the Trump years. I always thought the worst thing that Trump did to America, myself, was you put someone into power who had zero tact. And, for instance, I... I wasn't the biggest fan of Obama either. I think he did some things that were kind of far out there and uh, things I, especially when it came to Flint, Michigan, that really upset me mm. and how he handled that. Yeah, because I have friends there. But he was a tactful president. So the landscape kind of stayed tactful. When you got Trump in there and all of a sudden he was, you know, uh, grab him by their pussy or just flying off the cuff yeah, 15 you know. days it'll be gone yeah just it's it, stuff like that you all of a sudden empowered people to be like well our president talks like that i'm gonna talk like it all the time you know mm -hmm. and so i think that we've lost that respect and that way to uh listen and communicate with each other in in a humanistic way and now we're all kind of like rabid dogs that just bark at each other and don't listen so that that's well, my biggest thing I see. It it's a, it's a, an interesting observation. It's very very valid. Uh, Trump has taught us how to be rude, and uh, uh, sometimes when I'm online, because I spend a lot of time online, and uh, God, there's some people I just finally have to goodbye. Yeah, and. Uh, but for the main part, I love getting into discussions that can make me think, uh, make me try to figure out why you feel the way you do. Uh, see, for my money, the last great president we had uh, was Eisenhower. Because as a four-star general, he knew the Constitution inside out, upside down. And so he knew how to rule. He knew how to work with Congress. He knew what was their responsibility, what was his. We've not had a president like that since. None of them. They're politicians. I love JFK. I met him twice and shook hands with him twice and was heartbroken when he was killed. But he was still just a man. And uh, 
But Eisenhower, to me, in in this generation, has stood head and shoulders above any other president we've had, simply because of the military experience, which taught him what our government is. You know, I've I've watched uh, Bill Maher mm-hmm. with Man on the Street. Just walk up to people. How many branches of government do we have? Yeah, and they You've don't probably know the seen them too. Yep. Uh, eight, five, uh, three. three, and what are they? Oh, I don't know. Um, um, the Senate, <laughs> the House. No, <laughs> that's one branch of it, and. Uh, I am so sad, and I have promoted this online and will continue to my dying day. High schools or junior high, I care less which, go back to teaching civics. People don't even know what the hell our country is about. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more um, working with... uh younger kids in the job that I do and it's it's very interesting especially around like election time because they inevitably start talking about it but the total lack of understanding about what the structure actually is amazes me but they but yet we're still pushing uh, mathematics and things of this nature (laughs) so far and these other principles, but things like that have gone to the wayside. And to me, that's just insane. Well, I don't know if they have household or whatever they called it, housekeeping. Uh, home ec. Home ec. Yeah. Uh, but God, I, you know, I could go to, I went to classes because I had the hots for one of the ladies in there. <laughs> but God, I learned how to sew. I learned how to cook. I learned the difference of boiling and and simmering and and uh, all of this, you know, and all of the time standing working with this lady that I thought was so neat. This and, was your wife? No. Or just another No, this girl? was the one I had hots for, too. <laughs> but she was a, uh, uh, because my wife at first didn't like me, uh, but this Rita did. Gotcha. Rita was an immigrant from England. Oh, okay. That's the one you were talking about. Yeah. And uh, that was a whole nother story. <laughs> but uh, no, when I when I met my wife and finally got the first date, that was it. I went home and told my mother I met the girl I'm going to marry. And it took me four years, but I did. And uh, and I I don't know it. She she wrote me a letter one day. We'd been married a couple of years. And she wrote me a letter one day, and when she came to bed, she left it out on the kitchen table for when I got up in the morning. And it said, "I uh, I just have to tell you that." I we've been married two years and it you made me fall in love with you. She 
at the interim point in there, she went back to Nebraska for a year where she was from to work for her grandmother. And I went back to California where I had gone to element, or middle school. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the year, we both came back, coincidentally. She came back with a baby. So I figured, well, okay, she wouldn't marry me before. Maybe she'll marry me to give the baby a name. And uh, when Debbie was two years old, she wrote me a little letter that said, I know, you know I married you to give Debbie a name, but damn it, you made me fall in love with you. (laughs) Oh, wow. And... uh, those were the opening shots of 53 years, 3 months, 10 days, 11 and a half hours. And I was holding her left hand. When she passed away? to her heart when she passed. Was it just at home or a hospital? In or? the hospital. She was in a coma for 10 days. She had a seizure and was in a coma for 10 days. And our daughter was holding her right hand. I was holding her left. And uh, my youngest daughter... Uh, was holding her feet. Was that the hardest day of your life? No, I think the hardest day was when our oldest daughter died. That was harder than losing my wife because she was sick. The daughter came out of nowhere. She just... She got sick and died. Was it just a unknown illness or...? It was with her thyroid, and uh, she never said anything to anybody about being sick. And uh, all of a sudden, she was in the hospital, and we went to see her, and, and uh, she had died already. And my wife asked if she could go see her, and they had her propped up trying to get her breathing, and that was the hard day because after that every day my wife was I want to be with my Debbie I want to be with my Debbie so in essence half of my marriage died at that time and uh, and eventually then she did Uh, we'd go to the doctor for checkups and You'd ask her, how much are you smoking now? And she'd say, pack a day, and I'm holding, what, three fingers Mm -hmm. where she can't see. So I literally have blamed her death on suicide by cigarette. Yeah, my my father um, smoked from his teenage years all the way up to now. He still smokes, and I've tried and tried and tried and tried to get him to quit, and he has finally cut back quite a bit, but he still hasn't quit, which I don't think he's ever going to quit. I think he will die a full-fledged smoker, but I'm glad he's taken some steps to <laughs> cut back. Yeah. But, but he has cut drinking all the way out of his life that I uh, learned as of recently, and I had a conversation with him yesterday, and he sounds better than he ever has in the past year or two I had to and the one kicker for his smoking is he had a stroke in his 50s that was cigarette related and I had to move him into my house to help rehabilitate him and I just 
it was not too long ago. I was like, I will kick your ass if you make me go through that again because you can't give this shit up because that was a pain in, in the butt. Like, I don't know if anyone's ever, um, I mean, people have, but to give uh, insight to someone who hasn't ever had one of their family members have a stroke, it's like when you go to them, you're almost a stranger at yeah. that time till their brain heals because they don't know how to function. Sometimes they don't even know what your name is. I remember walking into the uh, emergency room and my dad was adamant that he wasn't going on the airplane to the hospital. And we're like, what are you talking about? And he couldn't find the word for ambulance. Uh And then he didn't know mine or my sister's name. And you could tell because he didn't, and you could tell his frustration, like he knew who we were, Uh but just going through that whole thing. And so I'm with you, like these habits that people uh, take on that are detrimental to their health, whether it's, alcohol, cigarettes, excessive eating, anything, you know, unhealthy habits, you really need to, as a person, almost look at how it's affecting other people's lives as well that have to deal with the pain of loss or the pain of um, taking up the slack and things of that nature. So I'm, I can't imagine what you've had to be through, not only losing your wife, but your daughter. Both those are huge pains. And that's one one that you always hear from uh, parents. I'm not a parent myself, but that they never want to bury a child. And you had to do that as well and bury your wife. And the first great-granddaughter. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. He's over there, six weeks, SIDS. But I, uh, no, I've been drunk twice in my life at 18. Did not like it either time. I've never been drunk since. Wow. So did you? So you smoked a little bit. You said you for you, about ten years, but pretty much you've lived a clean and sober lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah, except for women. <laughs> God, I love women. That, that's that's your your addiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my addiction. Do you have um, any anything that you want to do in this next ten years or so that you haven't, or are you pretty content? With where you are with your life, uh, I'm pretty content. I I resolved a long time ago. If it looked interesting, I'd do it. And if it looked dangerous, I won't do it. <laughs> uh, I've always come down on the side of, you know, since I got hurt, uh, I've always come down on the side of safety because I could have died. Very easily could have died that night, and this uh, was the night you rolled your patrol car. Yeah, and and uh, it earned me a pension. Yippee! Uh, but my my biggest contribution to the police thing was the patch, and I'm so proud of that. And it's so funny. <laughs> the other day, this lady friend of mine was pulling out of here. And the guy on the corner lot backed out of his lot with his company truck and into the side of her car. Oh, no. He didn't even look. So Sandy City had to pay to repair her car and took away his company truck. <laughs> but uh, Riverton police came and, and uh, 
he parked across the street and he got out with his pad and his clipboard. Oh, you're the guy who designed the patch. <laughs> That's pretty so awesome. So I'm even in the middle of the street, I'm recognized. <laughs> But, uh, no, that's been quite an honor. Uh, and I'm one of the things that does hurt. Uh, I drove tour bus for about two years. And I had one of the great big thick black clip uh, books that I had over 300 patches from police departments around the country. Uh-huh. Somebody stole it. Oh, no. And uh, so I've just had to put up with that. Utah, amazingly, has people with taking ways. They're, uh, they're humble. They're honest. But they'd steal your underwear if it wasn't under your pants. Yeah, we had a coworker who, um, this was a few years back, and this story still blows me away. He was... Um, moving out of an apartment. I don't know if you ever remember Eric Popke. We, yeah. Yeah. So he was moving out of his apartment and had a heart attack. And the people that were helping him move stole his U-Haul with all of his stuff. So then he gets out of the hospital and has nothing. All his possessions are gone. And then this is where I learned um, a real interesting thing about pawn shops in utah and how much rights they actually have um his stolen items were not all recovered but a lot of them were located at some of these pawn shops well when he goes to get them they're like well we're not giving them to you till you give us the money we gave the criminals and it was just this ass backward way right. of looking at things but i just think of like what person stills and from this time i think eric was maybe like 75 from a 75-year-old gentleman who's trying to get moved out of state and go on his own, and here he is having a heart attack, and you you steal all of his possessions from him. It just blows me away. That's I always tell my girlfriend that thieves are like, I hate thieves. <laughs> well, that's, that's one of the things I wish they would change the law. But, uh, no, it's true. If it's stolen, you got to pay to get it back. Yeah. And uh, that's why I've got insurance. I let them pay for it. And if it ends up in a pawn shop, fine. I care less. Yeah, no kidding. But I've I've just moved down to where I'm. You're living a very minimalized lifestyle here. Yeah. Because you live, do you live full time in this uh, RV? Yeah. It's, um, yeah. It's cozy in here. You don't. I think sometimes people become a slave to their possessions. Yes. Like they buy so much, so much, so much. And it's like, you're not taking any of that with you when you die. Exactly. One of the people's weaknesses in life is things. I couldn't agree more. There is a, a cliche out there about he wins who dies with the most toys, something like that. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, and it really, you know, when you think about the meaning of life, I have pretty much resolved. The meaning of life is love. Everything else is things. 
the meaning of life is love and everything else is things. I think that is spot on. I think that's some very, very wise words. It, uh, and people who are incapable of loving is because they're trapped by things. I would have to say I agree with you. I don't think I've ever looked at it that way, but yeah, if you live your life with love, you're going to live a great life, I think. If you live your life attracted to things, you're going to have a miserable life and invite all that drama into it as well that attached to things. Because mm. what, what is it that people fight about? Like I have this going on in my family right now um, with the passing of my grandmother. I have my mom and her and my aunt who are fighting with my uncle about what things. It's yeah. like, and then my mom tried to rope me into it for a second. Well, don't you think? And I'm like, I want nothing to do with this. Mm. It's all stuff. Right. And I don't care about stuff. I care about, I had my memories with my grandmother. She passed away. I get to take those memories with me. I don't give a damn about any of this stuff. And I'm not getting wrapped up in your guys' drama to de deal with it. One of my greatest possessions is an audio tape of a phone call between my grandmother and my brother at Christmas. They're both dead and gone for a long time. But I've got that tape. Oh, wow. And... Uh, uh, for a coming out party. I celebrated my 90th birthday at the park, and you probably caught wind of it. Mm -hmm. There were like 50 people showed up. That's cool. <laughs> and, uh, but I have this tape. I tracked down a guy up in, in uh, Holiday who has a recording studio who I'm going to have him cut four or five CDs of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, this summer, just give it to family members as little surprise gifts. That'd be cool. Here's a little something out of the past. And, uh, but I had, I was lucky to have the grandmothers I did. One was a bulldog and one a piece of silk. <laughs> <clears throat> and, uh, my paternal grandmother was the bulldog. And she was the one that my sister Carol one day at her house picked up a bunch of snails out of the garden right there. She says, look what I found, Grandma. And Grandma says, oh, yeah, let me show you what we do to those. Smashed <laughs> And that was the bulldog. And the velvet was came from England, Grandma Perry, came from England through the church to be a nanny for a family here. And uh, the mother had, they had nine kids and the mother died. And uh, so the church brought her over under his auspices to be a nanny for the family. And 
they married and had nine more kids. And then he died. So my maternal grandfather died when my mother was three years old. I never knew him. I'm named for him, but never knew him. And uh, it's just been so strange following these two because something came up, oh, I guess about two months ago on Family Search that we found a relative of yours, and it was a, a Robinson, Mary Robinson, back in the late 1800s. And so I looked at it, and I, oh, that's interesting. I got Robinson friends. I'll have to ask if they know her, of her. And uh, then I got looking, and lo and behold, God, I've got names I've never even heard of that are one or two generations back, you know, with marrying into the family and so forth. And uh, so now it's got my interest picked, and there's my newest curiosity is getting involved in this now. Holy cow. And finding who, and basically on my dad's side, the family came from Scotland, and on my mother's side came from England. So I'm definitely from the British Isle. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I just, if I ever wake up and find a day that I am not interested in something, that'll be the day I'm ready to go. I just, I find people, the, the variety of people. If you went down my list of friends, I have... Most of them are ladies, I'll give you that. Uh, but I have I have ladies all over the country that I have, some I've been lucky enough to meet in person. And, but uh, I just, I just love making friends and sharing viewpoints and attitudes and, and beliefs. And from everyone, I learn something new. And uh, there's one down in Louisiana that we talk every day. She started out doing, making commercial vests for workmen mm -hmm. with all these pockets and everything. Now she come up with a a juvenile thing, a a uh, camel and a, uh, what's the other one? There are stuffed animals that fit over the side of a crib. Uh -huh. And they're stuffed. And they're there to comfort the baby. When they're restless, mm -hmm. flip one over there. But it's not easy enough that the baby can pull it off and suffocate. But she's making these now like crazy. Because her other stuff, she wanted to make these vests, and no, they're too much. They wanted too many changes. They wanted this. They wanted that. So now she's gone with these little stuffed animals. So I hope it's a success for her. Well, it seems like you've, over your ninety-two years on this planet, have had the blessing of meeting and interacting with a lot of individuals, uh, creating 
long-lasting friendships. And it seems like that's the primary thing that you value in life is your friendships that you've created and those meaningful conversations. Do you have any bit of advice for anyone out there from your 92 years of experience to give to someone about living a meaningful life? Be open, but protected. Uh, let people know who you are. Don't be afraid to let them know who you are. Don't be afraid if they don't like you. How somebody feels about me, I could care less. Because I'm the only, I'm the most important person in my life. You're the most important person in yours. When we try to pass that off to somebody else, it doesn't work. Uh, I I say this to people and and especially women. No, no, no. My kids are the most. No, no, no. Without you, your kids wouldn't be here. You are the single most important person in your life. Never, never, never forget that. And so many people never learn it because they're so busy with something else. But, you know, when they say, no, my kids, I, without you, who would the kids be? Where would, would they exist? Yeah, I always tell that to people is, uh, well, not on the kid uh the kid topic but also like when they're no my significant other's happiness is the most important to me i'm like what no you got to be happy yourself to provide for their happiness i i i couldn't agree with more with you on that concept that your happiness is paramount to anyone else's yeah it's internal yes and uh like the old adage, you know, mama's not happy, nobody's happy, <laughs> uh, does hold true. You can contribute to someone's happiness, but mostly you can appreciate it. You can recognize it. And, uh, and the appreciation of their happiness has to be shown. There nothing. It doesn't cost you a penny to say I'm so happy for you. I'm, you know, I'm pleased to see you so happy. Uh, I love your smile when you're feeling. I I can feel your happiness radiate. There's a million ways that you can acknowledge people's happiness and being happy. And uh, there there sometimes I'll see a friend who something's bothering and they're irritated or they've been hurt and I you got a problem I got a problem let's work it out share it with them let them share their sadness with you so that you can bring their happiness back up and most people nowadays don't do that anymore you know, it's like in the old days, gee, we'd take, we'd get the whole neighborhood together and raise a barn. <laughs> now we call somebody and they haul it in on a trailer. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a very important distinction between the times you grew up in and the times now. Community is kind of lost on people, I think. It is. It definitely is. And uh, 
uh, and the internet has contributed greatly to it because now we isolate ourselves to talk back and forth and uh, we shouldn't be that way i i try i haven't been able to go recently but i try to go over to the senior center every day for lunch you know and i'll sit at different tables with different people i'll di- invite people to sit with me and uh, i have a couple over there that He's Jewish and she's LDS, and we get some really cockamamie discussions going. <laughs> and uh, uh, one thing I've never asked him yet, because I always had to giggle at the thing that the Jews cut half of it off before they even know how big it's going to get. <laughs> Only you. <laughs> but I do love... I do love people, but I do not love religion. I do not love the concept of God uh, as, as some isolated creature somewhere. Uh, no, uh, I liked I liked what you had uh, said that God is almost embodied in everyone as love. Right. You know, and I think that's very important. Well, love, love you can damage. And that's that's the strength of it is its vulnerability. Uh, the fact that you can love somebody shows that you have committed with the knowledge that you can be hurt. Uh, true words. See, and uh, and people people think love is different. People think that love is sex. You know, we make love. Oh, hell, you hug somebody, you're making love. And everything on earth is not necessarily sex. And sex is not necessarily everything on earth. Because I've had some pretty bad sex. <laughs> <laughs> but it, uh, no, everything starts with love. And, uh, either the acceptance of or the abuse of. And that's the key word to happiness, to sadness, to hurt, to pleasure, to growth. It's, uh, that's the key word. Without it, you don't have a life. Without it, you don't have acceptance. You don't have, all you have is bitterness and rejection and, and uh, that is so, so wrong. I mean, being an atheist, I can say, I have one life. I was given one life. I intend to live it till I have to give it up. And I live it every day. Uh, this lady in Louisiana I'll call her on the phone. She's on a a, a switchboard mm-hmm. at her work. I'll call her. She says, so, 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 how may I direct your call? From my heart to yours, sweetheart. Have a great day. And hang up. Oh, my gosh. That is awesome. That is awesome of you. I I almost think that this is the best area to end this conversation is just with that story. Well, that's up to you. <laughs> I, t- I tell the, cri- the kids, hey, 
get a tape recorder and go talk to your grandparents. Ask them one question and they'll talk for 20 days. No, and and exactly. And that's that's another reason I reached out to you because I, I always wanted to do um, one of the conversations I wanted to capture was with my grandmother. Yeah. She passed away before I had the uh, opportunity to, to do that. And um, I had recently been talking with a friend of, uh, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Kathy, you know, Kathy. Yeah. And she was like, you need to get out there and talk to Jim. You need to get out there and talk to Jim. <laughs> I was like, I'll get out there and talk to Jim. So I want to thank you so much for sitting down and having this conversation with me about your life, about philosophy, about um, my biggest takeaway is just loving people and the power of love in life. And you have one life, get out there, like you said, and live the damn thing. So thank you very much for coming on the show. And um, I hope to visit with you again on your 100th birthday because I think you're going to make it there. I hope to because <laughs> then I get a letter from whoever's president. The as long as it's not Trump. <laughs> I need a letter from the president. Ha ha. <laughs> Anyways, you guys all have a wonderful night, day, weekend, weekday, wherever it is out there. I always end these the same way. Just be kind to each other and we'll catch you on the next one. Thank you. Thank you.